reflective reading is, is the story from Luke chapter 10. Now, as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. Please join me in the spirit of prayer. Source and spirit of all life, God of many names and beyond all naming, we thank you for this opportunity to be still, to be present with you and to know that for this moment only one thing is needed. Help us to know more deeply that the mind, the heart, the body, the soul need this stillness like air. Spirit, the very word, is rooted in breath. Often we are too distracted by many things when there is need of only one thing. Give us the strength and the words to ask for help with the work when it is needed. Give us the wisdom and the discernment just to know what is needed, to ask for ourselves and to offer it to others. Give us peace, light, and clarity for the journey ahead. We are distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing, and we take it into our hearts as we enter the silence. I wanted to share with you my experience of the story of Mary and Martha, not in the hopes that it will be your experience, but in hopes that, as I said earlier, when the children were here, You might want to take a story, whether it's from the Jewish or Christian tradition or another tradition, but take one of the scriptural stories and live with it, contemplate on it, play with it, till you can crack it open and get the treasure inside that's intended for you. You know, kind of like those little Easter eggs that we did out in the congregation um, a couple of weeks ago. As perhaps many of you did, I first heard this story as a child. I was um, in the Sunday school class at my mother's Presbyterian church. Most of, a lot of you know that I grew up Catholic, but my parents were of different faiths, so I spent a lot of time with the Presbyterians as well. I wasn't quite sure why, but even then there was something about that story that bothered me. Nobody seemed to mind that Martha was stuck doing all the work. Jesus says, Mary has chosen the better part, and I felt sorry for Martha to have worked so hard, only to find that she was doing it wrong. And then the story just ends. There's no invitation for Martha to sit down to. Did Jesus apologize to Martha, or at least say thanks for dinner? Did Jesus think Mary was somehow better than Martha? And even if he did, it seemed like a terribly rude thing for a guest to say, and not very Jesus-like at all. Surely the Blessed Mother had raised him better. Guess that was the Catholic kid creeping in. 
Of course, the Sunday school lesson was that Jesus wants our listening and our love and our devotion more than any good works, but frankly, I found Jesus' behavior somewhat disappointing. In thinking about the story later in high school and in college as a liberal Catholic baby feminist, learning all about the cool Jesus who'd been kept from us by the man, I came to see that what Jesus was doing was radically feminist. Progressive, forward-thinking Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus in the position of a student, something not granted to women by the priestly authorities of the day. Progressive, hip Jesus praises Mary for her choice to place learning and spiritual growth over mundane domestic toil. But as John Dominic Crossan says, beware of a Jesus who feels too comfortable to you. You can't make Jesus into buddy Christ from dogma after all. If he doesn't rattle your chain, shake up your assumptions even a little bit, then you may be watering him down. And even a baby feminist is eventually going to dig still a little bit deeper into that story and admit that people still have to eat, food still has to be gathered and cooked, dishes still have to be washed, work still has to be done. Only who's doing it? One woman, that's who. Well, just another in a long line of mixed messages Christianity has given to women, I harumphed at the time. Be a virgin and chaste and pure, and while you're at it, give birth to the greatest son ever. You can do that, right? And now cook all this food and get it on the table because everybody's listening to Jesus and afterward they'll all be really hungry. But once you've done all this work, bear in mind that none of it matters because Mary, the perfect one, knew all along what was most important and she sat and listened to Jesus. I obviously had a great attitude about this story. As the years went by and I became a Unitarian Universalist, a mother, an active church volunteer, and then a religious educator in that order, I became more and more Martha's champion. Indeed, though Mary is pictured as the more spiritual and devoted one, there's every indication that Martha, too, has deeply spiritual interests. It is her home, after all. She issued the invitation. From a later story in the book of John, we know a good bit more about Mary and Martha of Bethany, the sisters of Lazarus, the one that Jesus raises from the dead in the book of John. That would tend to make a family, you know, make him kind of tight with the family. We know this is Martha's house and not the house of Lazarus. And we know that they will host another dinner for Jesus at a time when his entry into nearby Jerusalem will surely result in arrest. So they're not only fiercely devoted to Jesus, both of them, but they're very brave in their devotion. Mary is the one who washes Jesus' feet and anoints them with her hair before he is crucified. Martha is the first to call him Messiah. So clearly, Martha is not some disgruntled Susie homemaker, as she is sometimes portrayed. Apparently, Martha wished that she, too, could sit down and hear Jesus. Somebody said that out here. Maybe Martha just sits down. But there's a mob in the house that needs to eat, and the code of the desert prevails. She's duty-bound to provide hospitality to anyone who arrives at the door and would surely do no less, probably a lot more, for Jesus and his disciples. And though I certainly didn't realize it as a child, we know that Jesus loves Martha as well as Mary. To use her name twice in the way that he did is a sign of love and affection and not the patronizing pat-on-the-head tone that our modern ears might hear. 
It came as no surprise to me at all that a Google search of the Mary and Martha story turns up quite a few female Christian bloggers and that a number of them have referenced this story more than once and a number of them with far more traditional roots than I tend to get a little uppity as they grapple with it. They return to it again and again, quite understandably. They're living it. At least a couple have named their blogs after the story, such as Smart Martha, who has made it her mission to teach Martha's how to organize their way into having more merry time. (laughs) She's a little scary. Another one I really came to appreciate, though, whose real name I could only discern as Michelle, has named her blog Martha to Mary, learning from Martha's teachable heart and Mary's extravagant love. I want to read you a passage from Michelle with a reminder to turn on your universal translator. Because if you come to church here, you've been outfitted with one. If it's new, you may still be learning to work it. But it will help you listen through for the deeper meaning in religious language that is not necessarily your own. Michelle writes, I can just see Martha and feel what she's feeling. I've been there, stuck in the kitchen doing everything while everyone else sits around and enjoys the fellowship, Thanksgiving and Christmas, anyone? As the years went on and I drew closer to the Lord, I felt that too much stuff went into these holidays and not enough reverence to the one we were supposed to be honoring. I was being Martha and running around being the doer and was so jealous of the Marys out there having such peace and joy through the holidays yet I didn't know how to make the shift. It was a little awkward when I tried to help others stop assuming I was just going to take care of everything like I always had. But after a while, it did catch on. There has to be balance. Have you guys noticed there hasn't been an Easter potluck here for three years now? Because I decided at one point, A, it's not my job to organize it. B, it's not even really my job to find somebody who wants to organize it. If there's going to be an Easter potluck, it'll come from you. And everybody's made their plans and gone their separate ways. So I'm learning. I'm learning the the Martha lesson, slowly. Michelle goes on, I'm sure Mary wasn't sitting around all the time leaving Martha to do everything. I bet Martha just felt a little frustrated at the moment because she didn't have enough hands to get everything on the table while it was still hot. You should see me barking at everyone when everything's coming off the stove at once. I so get Martha. This, by the way, is a very common phrase among women writing about this story. We get Martha. She continues, We have to work or things will not get done. Jesus was not saying sit and read your Bible all day long and neglect everything and everyone around you. He was not saying you should never prepare and plan and serve, but we have to be able to recognize what is most important, and that is worship. If we have a worshipful heart, we will serve with kindness and compassion. We won't be biting people's heads off if we first had our time with the Lord before launching into our day. I wonder if Martha missed her prayer time that morning and instead jumped out of bed with a mile-long to-do list thinking she didn't have time. Michelle goes on to say she has carved out two full hours before she has to leave in the morning. She gets up very early to do this, to read our Bible and have private time for prayer and worship. That's where I find my balance and my strength. And really, it's in the best interest of everyone. Our paths may be different, but Michelle has come to understand from experience 
as I have, the value of a daily spiritual practice and the way that a day can come together with it and disintegrate it and disintegrate without it. I know any number of people in this church who will tell you they feel the difference when they don't think they have time to pray, to meditate, to write, to run, to walk, to create art, to do whatever it is that they have found they must do to stay in communion with the source. I'm not sure who said it first, but I've often heard, when you don't have time to meditate, meditate twice as long. So this is a story about balance. In another passage on Michelle's blog, she contemplates the phrase, there is need of only one thing. She knows that the one thing is a worshipful heart, but she wonders if perhaps Jesus is also saying to her, one thing at a time. That it's okay to do one thing at a time, mindfully, with care and devotion. When I read that, it brought to mind an episode of the TV series MASH, the one that introduces Dr. Charles Emerson Winchester III. If you remember that series, they're all surgeons in Korea, and he is horrified that he's been sent to Korea. He's trying to call his daddy and his daddy's friends and everybody he can think of to get him out of there. And he wants nothing to do with Hawkeye and BJ and that gang of rebels. His repeated mantra throughout the episode, I do one thing at a time, I do it well, and I move on. As the episode progresses, we see that although Charles and Hawkeye are destined to be each other's nemeses, each comes grudgingly to value the other's strengths and talents. Charles initially freaks out in the OR and comes to realize that he will have to develop Hawkeye's ability to multitask and that sometimes the fast way is better than the best way if it means saving more lives. The perfect is the enemy of the good. In a strange way, Hawkeye's constant joking around provides him a certain calm at the center that allows him to function effectively amid unspeakable horror. On the other hand, Charles is called upon to do a certain very intricate procedure that is not Hawkeye's strong suit. And Hawkeye discovers Charles' meticulous style and highly developed, highly focused skill pay off in saving the life of a man who would otherwise surely have died. Sometimes we need to do one thing at a time, do it well, and move on. So it is a story about balance. But I've come to see another dimension to this story as well. During the last election, for a little while, Sarah Palin made it fashionable in some circles to dump on community organizers. I never completely understood this since they've got to be the lifeblood of several movements dear to Sarah's heart. But anyway, during that rather surrealistic time, a bumper sticker emerged that said, Jesus was a community organizer. At first I thought that was just clever, but over this year as I've gotten more and more involved with community organizing, I realize it's not just clever, it's true. Jesus traveled from town to town accompanied by a small but mostly faithful group of volunteers helping to spread his message. He set about becoming a voice for the voiceless, making people aware of issues within their own cities and within their own hearts. He held the powerful accountable. He tried to tell all people of the power of God that was already within them. And he and his disciples did not generally book a block of rooms at the Ramada, but they stayed in homes where they were invited and welcome. If a town was not hospitable and no such invitation came, they moved on. 
Sure, there were the occasional multitudes on the hillside, but for the most part, Jesus shared his ministry by telling stories, by listening to people's stories, by telling them not always what they wanted to hear, but ways that they could help themselves, telling them one by one, the kingdom is within you. So when I read this story of Mary and Martha now, I understand that it is still, after all, a story about deep spiritual devotion, that the time spent in devotion to God or source of the inner life, as it is meaningful to each of us, is essential to our spiritual lives and helps us to get through those times when we have to do the work and be the Martha. But its lesson goes farther than that. It's about the time we need to spend having conversations about what we found, sitting with each other, to be mirrors for each other as we take in and ponder and learn to incorporate and use what we've learned so that we can walk it out into the world. And just about all of the notable mystics we can name who were able to do so have in some way walked it out into the world, from Jesus himself to Hildegard of Bingen, whose writings emphasize social responsibility and interconnectedness, to Gandhi, to Thomas Merton, who became a monk but also very publicly protested the Vietnam War, to the Dalai Lama and his quest to free Tibet. St. Teresa said it, Christ has no hands on earth but ours. We need the Marys of the world. We need the Marthas. And we need to grant each other the opportunity to be both. So what happens next? Well, here's one version. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. And you, Martha, would honor me to sit here with us and hear the stories as well. Let us sit together, grappling with the deeper meanings, appreciating each other's company and the unique perspective that each of us brings. You've invited us here to your home, dear Martha. Now please allow us to give you this time to rest and to feed your own hungry mind and spirit. When the time is right, we will all finish the preparations together and enjoy the feast, sharing the stories of our travels and your life here. Your household, your dear brother Lazarus, the people you take in from the dusty highway, and the stories you must have heard from them. Your service to us has been a mitzvah, a great kindness. And therefore, when we are done here, do us the great honor of letting us serve you. And so Martha sat down with her sister Mary, looked at her young face, and remembered how much she loved this poetic idealist whose birth she still remembered and whose behavior had so exasperated her just moments before. How beautiful she is, and how very wise all of a sudden. And she took her place at her sister's side. As she took her place at her sister's side, Mary placed a hand on hers and whispered, I'm sorry. And Martha put an arm around Mary's shoulder and said, Don't be, for this evening you really have chosen the better part, and we are both better for it. And when the meal was finished, all chose the better part to help with bringing the food to the table. Jesus, who who had taught his disciples that whoever shall be a leader shall first be a servant, now led them in serving the beautifully prepared food to their hosts. 
They served in gratitude for the knowledge that but for these wise and gracious women who now seated themselves at the low table before them, they would still be out on that dusty desert road moving on. Then they sat with the women to enjoy the feast themselves, and wine and deep, real conversation flowed freely for the duration of the evening. When, where two or more are gathered, may it ever be true for us. <laughs> 